Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, let me know if this sounds familiar. You grew up in a community that often told one version of a narrative, but then as you grew older, you learned a very different side to the same story. How did it make you feel when you realized things were more complicated than it had originally seemed? And if you ask questions, how were you received by your family and other community members? This week, my guests Sarah Bremerschley, a rabbinical student at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and co-founder of the organization If Not Now, and Sravya Tadapali, a board member with Hindus for Human Rights, reflect on their experiences educating themselves and others about the messy intersections of religion, politics, and culture in both Israel and India. We discuss how Sarah and Sravya each made it their mission to stand up for human rights, how they were received, and the pressures that can come with feeling like you're airing dirty laundry in mixed company. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sarah and Sravya, because it definitely has its share of interfaith-ish. So I first want to start off by by wishing Sravya a happy Diwali. Um, I <laughs> wanted to uh, hear how did you celebrate? Did you celebrate last week? Um, yeah, we did a little bit. We just um, made some food that we d- don't normally make. Nice food. Ooh, uh, what's your favorite? Uh, so we made like a potato fry, basically. So you mm-hmm. kind of make potatoes very small, then you cook them and you put um, like curry powder and all this uh, salt and spices and everything. So that's one of my favorites. So we just made that. Um, Fried potatoes. Sound, yes. Sounds familiar, Sarah. <laughs> 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 and what's what, Saravia, what's what's that dish called? Uh, I think we call it aloo fry, just potato fry. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. I don't, I, uh, sometimes Nothing it's fancy. just like, it's Indian and it's potatoes and it's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Great. Can th- throw some curry powder into the next latka recipe. So <laughs> that's delicious. That. Did you, did you, are you with your family? Yes, I am. And so do you celebrate just in a small gathering or did you do a community thing? What did it look like? Well, normally we would have these community events or we would have family over. This year, obviously, it's kind of still dicey with the pandemic. Um, mm-hmm. And my sister is in New York and it was a weekday. So we, we didn't do too much for Diwali this year other than other than making food. Um, but normally what you would do is uh, people do firecrackers and then they put out dias or, or lights Mm-hmm. Um, outside, which is also very similar to the Jewish tradition of Hanukkah. So, yeah. yeah. Another festival of lights. Everybody's <laughs> got one. <laughs> True. Well, cool. Well, um, I'm very happy to have the both of you here to talk about stories, to talk about narratives, to think about, you know, what are the the types of stories that we grow up learning about in our communities, how maybe some of our perspectives on those things um, change as, as we... Um, grow older and, um, you know, particularly when it comes to some of the messy intersections um, that exist between religion and politics and and certainly in the contemporary context, uh, issues of nationalism that arise. So I really would just wanted to hear from the from the two of you a little bit about what your religious upbringing was was like, how both of you engaged with 
with narratives around India and Israel, respectively. Um, so Sarah, can you tell us a little bit? Tell us a little bit about the the Jewish household that you grew up in. Yeah. First off, thanks for having me. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I grew up in the city and most of the Jewish community in that area at this point lives in the suburbs. And Judaism was a big part of how I grew up and also like my day-to-day community at school and that sort of stuff wasn't Jewish. So I was very much Mm. um, rooted in Jewish community, but also rooted in other community as well. And that I think has actually been extremely impactful for for who I'm becoming as a rabbi to be and who I am as a, a Jewish person today. And I grew up in the conservative movement, um, which is not a politically conservative necessarily, um, but Mm -hmm. is a denomination of Judaism and um, also had connections with the reform movement and now identifies reconstructionist. I'm a rabbinical student at the reconstructionist rabbinical college. Mm -hmm. And Israel was a huge part um, of what it meant for me to grow up as a Jewish person. There really, there really wasn't a separation between my Jewish identity and my relationship with the state of Israel. I went to Hebrew school three times a week, starting in third grade up until when I graduated from high school. And Israel education was a big part of that curriculum and and that work. Um, And I had a really, really deep connection to this place I had never been to. I, Hmm. my parents actually met studying abroad in Jerusalem in 1973. Um, and so there oh, were wow. a lot of stories growing up about Israel, and it was it was both presented to me as a utopia, but also as this like real place that I have a connection to, even though I had never stepped foot there. Um, and I couldn't wait to get there. And when I was 18 was the first time I actually ever went to Israel. Um, hmm. But that wasn't by any means the start of my relationship with Israel. In, in some ways, actually when I started to actually spend time in Israel and in Palestine, that, that was the next part of my relationship um, with the place, but it definitely wasn't where it began. And Saravia, how about for you? I know that obviously, you know, the no two countries are going to be the same. No two cultures are going to be exactly the same, but I'm curious for you, um, how, how, what was your relationship between an identity as an Indian American, but also in um, uh, how that intertwined with your Hindu identity? Yeah, well, definitely I had a somewhat similar experience in that Indian identity was very closely linked to Hindu identity. Um, every Sunday I would go to Hindu Sunday school and we actually would say, oh, it's it's like Indian Sunday school rather than Hindu Sunday school because okay. there is kind of this assumption that they go together. Um, but we would, you know, learn Hindu stories, Hindu songs, do yoga, all of these things. Um, I don't think I grew up with such an overlapping between the two because two of my parents' best friends were Indian Christians and they hmm. also had friends who were Indian Muslims. And so India, we talked a lot about in, in Balvihar, that's what we would call Hindu Sunday school, about how India is a pluralistic nation, how people come from so many different religious backgrounds. So I always understood India as a pluralistic nation. And I, I was a Hindu, which was the predominant 
religion in India. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my religious background was going to Balvihar on Sundays. Um, I lived in Oregon in kind of a more rural part. So the nearest temple was two hours away. So we would almost never oh, go to wow. temple. Okay. Yeah, um, Temple was a very rare thing for us, but we would gather in groups and do budgeons. We would celebrate festivals together in like a school yeah. cafeteria. So that's kind of what I grew up with. And what did that home practice look like for you uh, as that, that helped nurture or cultivate a, um, uh, a Hindu identity for you as a young person? Well, we celebrated different pujas. Pujas are basically rituals for different gods and goddesses. So we would do, for example, Saraswati Puja, Ganesh Chaturdi, and we would do those rituals at home with our family. And we still do those rituals. Um, and we would sing. I, I, there's videos of me. I sing the Sanskrit shlokas, which my mom would make me sing. And then I would ask, can I do an English prayer? And I would just make up an English, <laughs> an English ode to Saraswati. Uh, and then we would also have like community groups where all the Hindus would gather together and um, sing songs. Uh, and and then there would be like even larger community gatherings where we'd meet in a school gym or cafeteria for Diwali and things like that. So it sounds like for the both of you, you know, both of you were really f- firmly rooted in both your cultural identities, your religious identities. What was the narrative about Hindus in the Hindu community? How did you all talk about your experiences together? I did um, intern for the Hindu American Foundation um, after my sophomore year. And that largely came of kind of experiences I had in middle school and high school where I felt like Hinduism was really badly represented in the classroom. And Mm. I felt that I had repeatedly faced incidents of discrimination as a Mm -hmm. Hindu. But kind of as I grew older and I started kind of seeing a lot of the impacts of Hindu nationalism and how it was manifesting. I sort of kind of moved away from the Hindu American Foundation as I saw that they mm. were taking a more rightward turn. What was the narrative about about Hindus in the Hindu community? How did you all talk about your experiences together? Um, and, and what was your experience as, as a young person? Well, I don't think we ever saw us ourselves as victims i i never felt that at least in our hindu community spaces i felt like they were spaces for practicing our tradition and they were very depoliticized like we did not talk about indian politics Hmm. we did not talk about hindu nationalism i did know some kids growing up who had these very extreme views but i thought they were extreme views i Mm. i did not those were not normal in my community Mm -hmm. um in terms of you know being for believing that india ought to be a hindu state and muslims should have a second class citizens like those were very extreme views for me at that time Mm -hmm. we just didn't talk about it it wasn't politicized and i think people in the indian community really did not start talking about hindu nationalism or see it as a threat until maybe Modi's re-election even. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people during the first election, even people who were secular leftists supported Modi because he represented a change from the earlier political party, the Congress party, which was uh, seen as very, very corrupt. Mm -hmm. And and there's truth, truth, lots of truth to that. Yeah. Sarah, I'm I'm curious how how you're, as you're listening to Savia's stories, does any of this resonate with you? Or is it, are there differences that you see in which in in, in the ways in which um, uh, narratives about the in the American Jewish community that you are a part of talked about Israel talked about that identity? Yeah. Well, first, I feel like I'm learning a lot, and this is like the the 
political and religious dynamic you're discussing is not something I have so much knowledge in. So I'm first just grateful for, for that learning. I think I was, it was interested by you saying it was very depoliticized the way that um, it was talked about. Cause I, I actually wouldn't say that mainstream Jewish community way I grew up was talked about, like no one would say we are now talking about politics. Like that was not how it was addressed, but it was political. And I think that that's true even to this day that when the the status quo is often not seen as political. And so when we're doing, whether it be activism around Israel-Palestine to support Palestinian human rights or whatever it is, whatever the like the non-status quo opinion, whenever that's being inserted, it's seen as political, but actually it was very political the way I grew up talking about Israel, but we wouldn't have framed it that way. Um, And I think that that's actually something that can be really challenging is when you don't acknowledge that something is it. Well, first off, I'm a very political person. I think everything's political, but when you don't acknowledge that something is political and you frame it just as emotional or you frame it just as your religious like identity, that has the opportunity to lead to a lot of heartbreak, which was true for me at certain points too, of when I started to say like, oh, some of the narratives that I grew up around Israel with perhaps weren't totally true, or perhaps there's more complexity to it, or perhaps I don't know the Palestinian narrative as well. That led me at certain points to feeling like a, like quote unquote, bad Jew, because Mm -hmm. I was now pushing back against something that was presented to me as part of my religious um, or ethnic identity. And now I'm actually having trouble with that. So what do I do with that? So I think Mm -hmm. when we're not honest about, yes, this is a political aspect of identity, then it actually can lead to a lot of heartbreak in other aspects of identity as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there are a lot of, again, coming back to this word narratives, but the, that that I see um, from Jewish organizations, uh, individuals, particularly when they're talking about the conversations on campus, you know, when they're talking about the conversations amongst young people. And there's a any sort of a critique of of Israel is sort of uh, moved to be anti-Semitic, right? Like there's sort of a equating of these of these two things. Um, and so I'm curious, you know, what your experience was there did you did you go through any sort of a a transition in the way that you you felt uh in terms of your identification with um a love for israel but also you know feeling like i have a right to also be critical of these things that are not um just yeah it, it did happen for me in college or it began in college, but it wasn't because my campus was so politically charged. I, um, mm. So I went to the University of Minnesota and I graduated in 2012. So I actually, I mean, it's been a while since I've been in an undergraduate environment. Um, but in college, I became good friends with a Palestinian woman. And for the first time in my life was really introduced to the Palestinian narrative. Um, if you had asked me when I was 18 years old how much I knew about Israel-Palestine, I would have said, I know so much. But in retrospect, I, I didn't. I mean, that's, I think, true for a lot of people about a lot of things. 
And I had been introduced to a narrative that was not like it didn't align with how Israel was presented to me. And um, it conflicted with some of the values that I held of freedom and dignity and believing that all humans um, deserve equality and, and human rights. And that kind of sent me, I, I felt like I had a clear decision point at one point where I was like, okay, Sarah, you can run away from this issue because it's really hard and really painful, or you can dive in. And I decided to dive in and mm-hmm. ended up studying abroad in Jerusalem um, and during my time there, this was 2011, started to learn more about the occupation and um, about the experience of Palestinians there, in addition to the experiences of Israelis. Um, And came back, had one more year of college, did a little bit of stuff around Israel-Palestine. But I have to say, my campus was not a particularly political place, and it wasn't a particularly political place around this issue um, Mm -hmm. specifically. And so most of the work that I have done around Israel-Palestine has been after college. Um, I I helped found If Not Now, which is a movement that works to transform the American Jewish communities um, away from supporting the occupation and then have done work with the Center for Jewish Nonviolence, which um, primarily brings diaspora Jews to Palestine to do solidarity work with Palestinians. Um, and so through my work with Center for Jewish Nonviolence, it was really how I grounded myself in the work um, in Palestine specifically. And that was a very educational experience for me to not just think about this place as a theoretical place or to not only depend on what I'm reading about it, but what am I actually seeing when I'm spending time with Palestinians and Israelis? So, Avia, I, I, I want to also ask you, sort of touching back on this idea of working for uh, the Hindu American Foundation, what was what was that experience like for you, and and how how did your um, understanding of the the politics of India and and Hindu identity, especially here as an American Hindu, how did those things um, blend together? Well, when I was in middle school, high school, at that time, I felt that as a Hindu, I was kind of facing issues from other students, predominantly white Christian students in my community. And so for me, being a Hindu was kind of a marginalized identity. And that's that's how I saw myself. Um, I was always against Hindu nationalism. Like even in high school, I was having arguments with like these two particular students I'm thinking of who would say these outrageous things like India is a Hindu nation. Hindus are under threat in India. And I would argue with them at that time. But I did not see the Hindu American Foundation as a Hindu nationalist organization. I, I saw them as a civil and human rights organization. Um, and at the time I applied for the internship, I really did not have any ideological differences between what they were doing and, and what I believed. And I, I had a great experience at the internship, honestly. Um, and I volunteered for them for about a year. And Starting in the summer of 2019, after Modi got reelected, I started being increasingly concerned that they were not speaking up about Hindu nationalism. Hmm. Um, Because when I was there, I never necessarily, I'd never really heard 
blatantly like Hindu nationalist things, but increasingly they were not speaking up. And then as 2019 went on, they started taking positions, you know, in favor of Modi's occupation of Kashmir, um, in favor of the Citizenship Amendment Act, which is, you know, well documented that it could strip millions of Indian Muslims of citizenship. And as this kept going on, I started realizing like, okay, they're definitely not ideologically aligned with me. And I think part of that is I became more aware that Hindu nationalism was a threat. Whereas before I was kind of like, this is this thing that only a few extreme people talk about, but it's not actually a concern, you know, like this isn't actually going to happen in India. And so I started seeing these things really emerge in India and really grow extremely concerning. And then I saw these organizations that I used to be a part of move further to the right. Um, That was a a big wake-up call for me, and I started getting involved in Hindus for Human Rights, which is the organization I'm now on the board of, um, in early 2020, really to combat Hindu nationalism um, from a Hindu faith perspective. I, I really, really hate that Hindu nationalism is appropriating my faith to perpetuate a really hateful ideology and destroying the lives of millions of people. Um, and so I see it as actually part of my religious duty as part of a faith that believes very strongly in pluralism and that every human being is divine, that we need to stand up for for the human rights of marginalized communities in India. Are these Hindu institutions um, directly and overtly supporting um, what you consider to be like really bad nationalist policies or is it that is it more of a um uh, not not acting up uh against against these these policies i think that it used to be more of the former where they were simply not reacting to hindu nationalism and now i think that a lot of these institutions are actively promoting Hindu nationalism. And why is that? Why, why do you think that they're, they're making those choices? I think a lot of this increase has happened since 2019 when Modi got reelected. Because first, when he first got elected in 2014, it was kind of dicey, like, okay, we don't know how much support he's going to have. Um, but in 2019, that was like a refer, kind of a public approval of everything that had happened in the last five years, which had included Mm. lynchings against Muslims, which had included Muslims feeling less secure in their own country. Um, And I think think 2019 is when a lot of Hindu organizations, I mean, you see this also with Hindu Students Council, you see this with some temples um, where they thought, you know, we have license to go and support these policies openly and we'll get probably more donations and more public support because of it. So I I think that first they were tentative because they didn't want to necessarily look like they were really far right. But Mm -hmm. um, as these institutions in India became more empowered, they felt like they had the, they had the public support to be able to take these positions. And so for, for you as a young person who's shifting in your perspectives on supporting, you know, uh, HAF and other organizations. I, I'm I'm curious if you've been called a bad Hindu or oh, yeah. anti-Hindu for yes. supporting Hindus <laughs> for human rights. Yes, I haven't. It's not something I expected at all. When I joined mm. Hindus for Human Rights, I was not expecting any kind of conflict 
with um, any mainstream Hindu organizations uh, because so many of the people that I know in my personal life, especially, honestly, South Indian Hindus are very against Hindu nationalism and very, very religious. Many people in my family are very, very religious and they are definitely not Hindu nationalists. So I never saw a conflict between being a religious Hindu and 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 supporting or not supporting Hindutva. But definitely on social media, I've had people say, oh, you're not really a Hindu, you're a Muslim, or you're working for a Muslim organization disguised as Hindu, or you're working for an organization of converts. And like, none of that's true. (laughs) It just isn't, you know? Mm. So how how about you, Sarah? Are you (laughs) (laughs) anti-Semitic? Yeah, you know, I think the... The internet has is not always a kind place, and there have been lots of, of names and things like I, uh, one thing that gets a lot of Jews who are critical of the state of Israel get called a capo a lot. So capos um, are Jews who uh, assisted in the actions of the Nazis during the Holocaust, and I would say that that is the most common thing on the internet that Jews who support the human rights of Palestinians get called in a nasty sort of derogatory sort of way. Mm. And I, you know, I have to like make jokes about it to get through it. And I feel like at some point I was just like, okay, get more creative with your insults. Like it's been a few times now. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's, I think, I mean, very similar to what you're saying, Saravia, like I think our legitimacy gets questioned um, our commitment to our people gets questioned. And believe me, if I didn't, like, this is not the easiest issue for me to work on. Sometimes it seems like it would be easier and less emotionally exhausting to work on another issue. But I work on this issue because I care so deeply about the Jewish people and the Jewish community. Right. And that's why I'm here. And like, I, and they want People who disagree with us want to delegitimize us and they want to poke holes in what we're doing by saying we don't love our people, but we do love our people. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this. Exactly. Sarah, you had your arm broken in 2017 during a protest in Israel. And I'm curious how if you would you know, share a little bit of that story and how that event and putting yourself in harm's way affected your approach to activism? Yeah, yeah. So in 2017, I was a part of a nonviolent protest in Jerusalem, protesting the Jerusalem Day Parade. So Jerusalem Day is um, the day in 1967, where Jerusalem was, depending on everything's political, right, depending on how you present it, was united. So East and West Jerusalem or East Jerusalem, Palestinian East Jerusalem was occupied. And there is a very racist, fascist march that happens every year as part of this day. And me and about 50 other people protested this. And in that protest, the police were very violent with us. And they, um, I was assaulted by a police officer who fractured my elbow, uh, causing me to need intensive arm surgery to ever move my arm again. Um, And that was like, I mean, that was a huge moment for me. And like, there's so many different layers and angles to take that. I mean, just in kind of the, um, the physicality of what it means to be able to move your body in one way one day, and then the next day not be able to do that, I think was a huge 
eye-opening experience for me. Um, and I think politically it like, you know, this was like a horrible thing that happened to me. And also this is the sort of violence that Palestinians deal with on a daily basis. And it was very clear to me at that moment of like, oh yeah, I'm getting like a taste of the brutality of the occupation. And also I don't live here full time and I can leave it. Mm. And that is not the reality for, for Palestinians, um, nor does it want to, nor do they want that to be their reality. They want to stay in their land and live freely in their land. Um, and so it was a, it was a very um, eye-opening experience in that way. I also feel like on the, you know, thinking about state violence and police brutality, I think it gave me a new perspective um, for that as well. And something that, you know, speaking honestly, so that was almost, that was like four years ago now. And I think in my own healing process, emotionally, you know, I've learned a lot about trauma and that healing from trauma is not linear. Um, and it's inspired me to, as I am close to becoming a rabbi, is to think about how do we support people who have experienced state violence, and that includes police and military brutality. Um, and so it's given me another lens to political work, that politi that healing work need is political, and political work needs to include um, an emphasis on healing as well, because it is, a, it is an emotionally exhausting experience to push against the status quo um, emotionally for, for all the, in the, all the ways that we've already discussed and also in physical ways too. Um, and I, and yeah. I just got a small taste of that. So Sarah's talking about a number of these things on, on various levels, the, the, the very personal, physical, and then sort of the meaning of that in, in a collective sense. And I'm curious, Ravia, for you in moving towards justice, what do you think are the responsibilities of the, institutions, religious institutions, cultural institutions, and individual adherents or community members? And, and how are those responsibilities different? Well, I really wish that religious and cultural institutions in the Hindu community did a better job of not simply teaching people the stories and the songs and the rituals. That's all that's all valuable and important, but also teaching people the philosophies of Hinduism and also about public service and kind of tying into these uh um, real world aspects that are more relevant to our to our lives. That's something that I really wish that um, Hindu communities did. And I wish we're not at that point yet, but I wish most Hindu communities kind of challenged Hindu nationalism and challenged this radicalization that was going on. I think we're far from that. I think the greater threat is temples and Hindu organizations going more toward the right. I would rather have them be neutral and just focus on the rituals and the stories and the songs than actually be promoting the, the BJP agenda. Mm. Um, but I, I really wish that Hindu spaces could be places where um, young Hindus could develop a concept of justice. And I, I think for individual Hindus who care about promoting social justice and equity, um, a lot of that has, has come from self-study and self-learning. Fortunately, there are spaces like one of our close partner organizations is Sadhana. And Sadhana does a really, really great job of encouraging young Hindus to look at texts critically and think about how to develop a more positive and progressive visions of Hinduism 
Um, I am part of a Bhagavad Gita group every single week, and we are all pretty progressive Hindus, and we we talk about these texts, and we talk about some of the problematic aspects, and we talk about how we can maybe apply more of the progressive aspects to our daily lives. So I, I just wish more of that was kind of in the mainstream rather than these individual, very small groups here and there. And do you see um, more activism by young people that are are questioning these narratives that might be promoted from the institutions? Unfortunately, I really don't. Um, And a lot of that, well, part of it is I think that a lot of people stop identifying as Hindu, either because Mm. they feel like it's not super relevant to their lives in America, or they don't really believe in it, or for whatever reason. And so they kind of think... Hinduism is not relevant to me. India is not relevant to me. I am going to live my life in America and do my own thing. Um, And those who identify actively as Hindu, you know, they might be practicing, but even if they're against Hindu nationalism, they're not necessarily going to see fighting Hindutva as a priority. So I think that's something that I really want to change in my community is making people more aware of Hindutva and making people more aware of the issues going on in India. Hmm. Sarah, what about... What about for you? Do you, given the political climate that that we're in, where everything's so charged, um, what do you think can happen to move things in a more uh, positive direction? Or, or, I mean, do you think that it's going to get worse before it gets better? Well, I think there's like two parts to that question I'm thinking about. The first is um, in thinking about what is the what is the shift that I have seen over the past ten years, like. Like mm-hmm. I was talking about when I was in college, I don't think I could have found five other Jewish people on my campus who were aligned with me politically and wanted to act on it from a Jewish mm-hmm. place. I think that is very different now. Um, just this past week, the New York Times Magazine had a really amazing piece looking at rabbinical students and how more rabbinical students are actually speaking up on behalf of Palestinian human rights. And I find that deeply inspiring and I'm really grateful to be colleagues with these people who are saying like out of love for our people comes also love for the and commitment to the idea that all humans are B'Tselem Elohim. All humans are made in the image of God and that we must fight for that. And part of our responsibility as religious leaders is to have people live with freedom and dignity and advocate for that in every way that we can. And so I'm, I'm feeling very inspired by, I think the shift I'm seeing in the American Jewish community here. And, you know, it's, I spent the last year living in Jerusalem and um, the political situation there, it, it does feel bleak at times. I mean, settler violence. So violence from Jewish settlers living and the West Bank and East, and East Jerusalem towards Palestinians is on the rise. Um, there is increased home demolitions, and there's there's an increased violence towards Palestinians, and a and a push to try to push them off of their land in a way that um, is very very hard to see, and doesn't always doesn't always feel you know like it's. Um, it's improving necessarily, but what I think I go back to and I feel inspired by are those who are resisting that. And there is a lot of really powerful resistance on the ground um, in in Palestine of Palestinians saying we're gonna we are gonna struggle and 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 fight for uh, for us to stay in our land. 
And I, I think for me, I think we're in a very interesting political moment. Um, I was in Jerusalem during the recent um, escalation of violence in May. But what I was seeing the reaction in America was, was actually more and more people speaking out to say the violence that we're seeing and the, um, the, the disparity in the number of Palestinian and Palestinians and Israelis that are being killed is not acceptable. And um, we, we believe that all people should live with freedom and dignity. And I think that's very much connected to the uprisings that we saw in 2020 with Black Lives Matter after George Floyd was murdered. And I think we're in a moment where more people, and I think young people specifically, are being awakened to the reality of state violence and are saying, this is not something we can get behind and we're going to go out in the streets and we're going to protest this. And so I think my community um, is also applying what they saw in what what they saw and what they continue to see in America with police violence to see oh, there's some similarities between what's happening here and what's happening in Israel-Palestine. Well, this has been great so far. I, you know, our uh, format of the show is that we like to reserve time for, for our dear guests to, to ask each other questions and to follow up with one another. So I'd love to, uh, to sit back a little bit and, and have the two of you ask each other questions of, of uh, your own. Um, Sarah, do you have any questions for Savia? Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, something, a dynamic that comes up in, in the American Jewish community, and I think specifically people who are who are speaking out in support of um, Palestinian human rights, is like this concern about like airing our dirty laundry, and um, how do we have this conversation in a way that that we're comfortable with like non-Jews seeing as well? Um, and I'm curious how that is for your community. Is that a similar dynamic, or is it really different? I think that dynamic exists among Indian Americans more so than the Indian immigrant generation, because I know for for me, sometimes I'm hesitant about talking about problems in Hinduism, like caste discrimination. It's such an awful, awful problem, and it's something that we really need to address. But I think sometimes when you talk about it with non-Hindus or non-Indians, it can be self-conscious, like oh, am I just describing like this horrible backwards tradition and just re-emphasizing or reinforcing racism or something against my community? And the same thing with talking about subjects like arranged marriage, which I also think is really, really problematic. Um, but uh, you might be a little bit more hesitant talking about it in white spaces. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that I've personally had to kind of overcome and get over. And now I'm very comfortable saying caste discrimination is wrong, arranged marriage is wrong, and, and having those conversations without feeling like I'm airing my community's dirty laundry. Um, I, I think uh, because Indian Americans have faced discrimination and racism, it can be, they might feel uncomfortable necessarily talking about these bad things, but you sort of have to in order to address these really important problems in your community. You cannot be afraid to, to talk about these openly, especially to the people that are running policy who are generally not Hindu or Indian. And I actually wanted to ask you something about, I think the Jewish community, 
doesn't have this problem that we have in, in the Hindu community, which is that as Hindu progressives, we often get criticized from the left, actually, with people saying that Hindu nationalism and Hinduism are one and the same. Mm-hmm. And to destroy Hindu nationalism, you have to destroy Hinduism, or you have to kind of dismantle the Hindu Hindu faith. And I don't think that Jewish people who are against Israeli atrocities get this get the same criticism from the left. And so I was wondering just is in the Jewish community there's such a long history of progressive progressive thought and scholarship. Like do you have any advice for Hindus about how we can communicate that the faith and the political ideology are different mm. or maybe combat that the idea that Hinduism is inherently problematic? Yeah. Just to clarify, you get that criticism from like Hindus on the left or or like non-Hindus on the left? We get that criticism from like Indian non-Hindus, Indian Indian people who are secular. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing I that feels true in Judaism and I and my my guess is it's true for your religion as well, is that there is a lot of history and text and wisdom that exist outside of nationalism that like, it's not like our whole religion is based in nationalism. There is so much wisdom there that that's outside of that. And I think that there's a long history of what it means for us to, um, to, to be a people that exist not only in a system where we are the majority. Um, And I think turning to that is, is, is really important. And yeah, I mean, I think in the Jewish community, we have, we do have a history of progressive activism. And I think we also, and I feel like as someone who wants to, my community to always do better and to promote justice and freedom more, we can't like sit on, sit on the laurels of our past and not actually act on it too. We have to like, like be active in social justice movements today um, as well. So I think just saying, yes, we can learn from our past and also we can always improve is is really crucial. Yeah, I actually want to ask a follow-up question. So one of the other things that we're dealing with in the Hindu community is this conversation about caste and how caste is so interwoven into Hindu scriptures and into the way people practice. And so one of the debates that's going on is can Hinduism exist independent of the caste system? Mm. And all religions have this history of having roots in patriarchy and exploitation of other communities. How has the Jewish community sort of reconciled with, with these issues, you know, your, yourselves and how, how do you kind of deal with them and think about them? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, so I'm part of the reconstructionist community and embedded in reconstructionist Judaism is this, it, it's in our name that we should we should be open to reconstructing aspects of our of our religion. And so what that means is don't run away from things you disagree with. So for example, in in my denomination, um, you know, historically this idea of the Jewish people as the chosen people has been very central um, to Jewish identity. And what the reconstructionist community has done is to say actually as American Jews and as like just Jews in general, it does not align with our values to consider ourselves the chosen people because that creates 
a, um, a disconnect and a separation between us and other communities. So we are going to change our liturgy around that. So our liturgy has actually shifted away from chosenness. So you see this in many of our prayers, that words have been changed or words have been added um, as a way to say, okay, we respect and honor the tradition of our ancestors, and it doesn't work for us anymore. So to not be afraid of shifting away, I think is really crucial. I also think like, like, thank God for feminist, like theology, you know, like, (laughs) Really, yes. um, I think it's really, really crucial. And I mean, the fact is, is that a lot of our like wonderful texts have been written by, in ways that don't actually represent who we are as a people today. And so I think we need to really honor contemporary voices being brought in. And like folks like Judith Plaskell, there's a book, Standing Again at Sinai, where she actually talks about, she was like, women have not been included in this conversation about receiving Torah in our community. So we, we mm-hmm. actually have to fundamentally change some of our, the ways we think about um, our theology and our relationship to the divine, because that hasn't been included. So I feel like part of it is, you know, is not being afraid to say this doesn't work for us anymore. And I think part of that is also being open to the fact that like, I am very much an American Jew. I am a, 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 a person that is deeply rooted in my tradition as a, as a Jewish person. And also I'm impacted by other cultures and communities around me as well. And that's not a, I mean, this is like an interfaith radio show. Like that is actually a good thing. And that is going to help make me a better person. I really believe that. And like, I think about this like, this term of solidarity and like how I, tr- I try to think about solidarity is I'm going to show up a hundred percent as me. You're going to show up a hundred percent as you, and we are going to learn from each other and build together. And I think that there's a, you know, I think there's a real fear and I don't know if this is true in your community. Like there's a real fear, which is legitimate of assimilation that we're going to lose mm-hmm. part of our culture and part of our tradition um, by, you know, being, in connection or community with the, with the outside communities. But I actually think that that by that fear is not rooted in reality, in my opinion, because there's so much wisdom and beauty to Judaism that if we really demonstrate that to people that we can hold more than we think we can hold both a love for our tradition and we can also bring in other communities as well. Um, and I, I'm, I have a question for you. What is your, like, what is the relationship between Hindu communities that are doing the human rights work um, that you're doing as two communities in India who are doing the work there too? Like, what is the relationship between those communities like? Yeah, well, we work very closely with our partners in India, and we're always trying to find ways to support them. For example, last year during um, really the peak of COVID, we were raising money um, and trying to get folks to donate 
to organizations in India doing on-the-ground COVID relief work. Um, and especially when it comes to things like the farmers' protests mm-hmm. and various other actions that are going on, we're always aware in trying to support in, in whatever way, ways we can that are effective and, all, and you know, follow all the rules and stipulations, but we're, we're very aware of what's uh, going on in India. I think most of the way that we can have impact is trying to influence U.S. policy because we are mostly Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just kind of leaning into the fact that 53%, according to the Carnegie Endowment uh, for International Peace study on Indian Americans' views on politics in India, 53% think that Hindu nationalism is a threat. Uh, so really mm-hmm. leaning into that and and trying to use that to push for uh, policy and statements from the U.S. government that are more critical toward the Indian government, that's where we're really able to exert the most influence. Mm. I, I mean, this is a question I'm sitting with hearing you talk too. of like, what is the role? I think an argument that um, folks from my political position often get told is like, well, there are all these Muslim countries around Israel. So why shouldn't Israel be a Jewish state in the way that it exists now? Oh, this is totally a thing that yes. people talk well, about in the, in the national your space. reaction is in your context to that? <laughs> I mean, my question is, people definitely do say that. They, like, for example, the Citizenship Amendment Act passed last year, and it's a rule that basically allows any non-Muslim refugees to get a fast track to citizenship in India if they're from Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh. And one of the arguments people always say is, like, why does India need to protect Muslims, too? Like, Muslims have Pakistan, they have Bangladesh and Afghanistan. And um, why can't India be a Hindu state? And I just don't believe that that is what India was created to be. India was created to be better than that. It was created to be a secular state where all religions could be treated equal equally. Uh, this, is to me, is the best thing about India, is that it is a secular you know, a secular state that has decided that it's going to honor people of all religious backgrounds. That's what truly makes it a great democracy for, for so many years. And that should just be preserved. I don't see why it has to be like um, other states that have decided to adopt a state religion. To me, being secular is what makes it better in a lot of ways. And I'll, I also want to know about you. So I was kind of like pessimistic about... Hindu activism against Hindu nationalism. And it seems like you've had a much more positive experience with that. So what advice do you have to give us about how to really mobilize young Hindus to to get involved in, in the cause? I think one thing that comes up and, you know, I don't, I wonder if it comes up as much for your work because of, I think what you were talking about, the ignorance that people have around I mean, people, I'm not saying people know a lot about Israel-Palestine either, but I think it's it's more in the mainstream news in the U.S. than the conversation around Hindu nationalism is. I think what happened, and I mean, this was true for me too, is young Jews who held progressive values would go into maybe college campuses, maybe friendships, and they would notice like, oh, and this was true for me. I agree with this person on 95% of political things, but why don't we agree around Israel-Palestine? And I think that that opened up a lot of people's curiosity to investigate this issue more because they were noticing that communities that they really trusted and were in relationship with were seeing something about Israel-Palestine that they weren't seeing. 
Um, and I think if not now, really spoke to to people at that time to say, you can do this, like, it is crucial we do this work. And you can do this work from a place of your Jewish identity as well, and really rooting it in that. Um, because I think this is an issue I'm doing to, I, I work on this because I care deeply about the, the freedom and dignity and human rights of all people and um, including Palestinians. And I'm also doing this work because I care deeply about the future of the Jewish people. And I want us to act in the most ethical way possible. And I think what has been really impactful is for people to feel that doing work supporting the human rights of Palestinians is that that's not not a Jewish thing to do. That is a Jewish thing to do. And I think really grounding it in that has been um, a really important point for people and an important way to build community. I think we're actually seeing right now a resurgence of the Jewish left in a really powerful way in this country. I know we're taking a lot of inspiration from the work of anti-Zionist groups because there, there's so many Jewish groups that are standing up to Israel and talking about Palestinian human rights. And as far as I know, we are the only Hindu organization that is actively taking a stand against Hindu nationalism, along with, with Sadhana, which is closely linked. But I, uh, we're definitely learning a lot um, from the success that Jewish progressives have had in organizing. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to just say that I'm I'm really enjoying uh, <laughs> listening to this exchange. I think hopefully this can be a, a connection that yeah. that keeps going and flourishing. Um, I'm I'm curious for the both of both of you. We talked a little bit about, or I, the two of you talked a little bit about um, the role of people who are outside um, both the Jewish and Hindu communities, um, particularly here in the U.S. and and I'm curious for you, like, what are what would be number one resources that you would recommend for people to to learn more about these issues and 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 get a more nuanced perspective on on the things that are are maybe uh, glossed over or or presented in a very one sided way um, in in mainstream media outlets? And also, what what is the role that that folks outside of these communities play in in having a voice in these issues? I think if you are really jumping into Israel-Palestine for one of the first times and you want more of a history and a background, there's a book, um, a dual narrative perspective called Side by Side, which is, I think, a really great grounding for seeing the narrative aspect. I think often Israel-Palestine is like talked about like, oh, there's these two communities that just have different stories and will like it will never be solved. And I think that this book actually does a really good job talking about how do how did both communities see these political the political moments these historical moments so i recommend that book for kind of a historical grounding if you want to get a sense of kind of day to day what's happening in israel palestine 972 magazine um, which has an online english um, webpage um, is a great way to get that information the foundation for middle east peace is an organization that hosts a lot of webinars um, about what's going on there. And um, they are all recorded and, and put on their website. So I recommend that. So those are just a few places um, to get involved. And as far as like non-Jews or non-Palestinians um, wanting to get involved in this issue, I think like listening to the experiences of people who are on the ground is really important. 
And I think, you know, this is, I think, true for for non-Jews. It's definitely true for the Jewish community is that we were often raised in a way that didn't include a lot of voices of Palestinians. And so I think spending time to listen to the experiences of Palestinians um, who are who are dealing with the daily reality of military occupation um, and the um, the oppressive policies of the state um, is really crucial. Both the issues concerning Israel, Palestine and India for the people that are experiencing it directly on the ground there are happening in languages other than English, mm-hmm. right? So media coverage of these things is inherently going to be, you know, regardless of the fact that, yes, we don't learn modern Indian political history in school or, you know, the the, the history of, you know, Zionism from a variety of perspectives and what it is that created the Jewish state. You know, we have sort of a maybe at best a cursory knowledge of these things in a language that is foreign to any of the things that were that these things were happening in, you know, in in their original um, the original context. Mm-hmm. So what is the best that we can expect from from this, given that if you don't speak Arabic and you don't speak Hebrew, and if you don't speak any of the myriad languages across India, you know, you're you're lacking so much context, you know, you're you're just you're you're sort of by definition gonna be sort of at arm's length from understanding any of it. I'm I'm just curious what your your takes are on on how to have an informed perspective. Um when when you frankly don't speak the languages yeah i mean i think so like i mentioned 972 magazine is a um, online publication that prints in hebrew arabic and english um and so i think and you know from my experience spending time in um, palestinian communities there is also an understanding of exactly the tension that you're talking about jack which is that there is a need to, you know, and we can we can talk about the political ramifications of this, but there is a advantage of being able to share some of these stories in English um, as a way to to get get these experiences out there and to get these experiences um, heard by people who maybe have some political power as well. So in some of the Palestinian communities I've spent time in, there are like English storytelling classes where. Um, activists are learning how to communicate stories about their experience of occupation in the English language so people can hear this. And so um, Youth of Sumud is a specific um, organization of activists in the South Hebron Hills who are who are working on this. You can follow them on social media, Instagram, Twitter, that sort of stuff, uh, Facebook. Um, so that's a good that's a good place to start. And you know, I think as far as the like missing the context, like, yes, the language piece is an issue, but I actually think the harder thing around missing context is not understanding like the feel of what's happening there in a different way. Like the word I often go back to when thinking about the occupation is absurd. Like it's not logical. For example, I'll tell a story about what happened this past Shabbat over on Saturday in the Palestinian community of Susia, nearby Jewish settlers came in and took over a 
children's playground, Palestinian community, kick the kids out of the playground. And like, there's literally images of grown men sitting on seesaws that um, there are swing sets that children had been on. I think that that is actually the context that is hard for people to understand. And so I think spending time in Palestinian communities is a, I mean, that's a high bar, but that is a really um, powerful way to actually see like, what is the one state reality that Israel Palestine is experiencing right now. And so the language piece, I think that there's actually enough resources out there on, on my issue um, that that's not such an issue, but I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around um, what it means. And I think some communities in the U S have an easier time wrapping their minds around what does it mean to live under military occupation? Um, that for me feels like the harder contextual thing for, for a lot of Americans to understand. Hmm. I think in the Indian context, English is, is a lingua franca in India. So the the language difference doesn't really create a huge issue. At least I, I don't, you know, I don't read an Indian language and I know how to follow things. Um, for example, The Wire and News Laundry, they have great English resources. Um, and I think that actually the bigger issue or the bigger barrier to people understanding Hindu nationalism is actually our own community segregation is in the Indian community in the U.S. It's heavily dominant caste. It's very heavily Hindu. And when you look at social groups, they tend to also isolate themselves by caste, religion, even like language. Uh, most of my parents' friends growing up were Telugu, which is the same ethnicity or ling- ethno-linguistic group. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I did have other friends who are Indians of other religions. I have family members who are of other religions, but not everybody. In fact, most people do not have that background. And if you don't know people who are Muslim and Indian or non-upper caste folks, then you're not going to have a full perspective of what it means to be Indian right now and what the political situation looks like. So I think very similar um, to, to that issue of kind of not knowing what military occupation looks like, if you don't know what other communities' experiences are, you're never going to have a full understanding of the problems. Mm-hmm. I think that's an insightful moment uh, or point to end on and uh, with the conversation. So thank you, uh, both of you, for, for sharing these these perspectives. Um, I hope that uh, the folks who are listening are um, have have embraced what you've said with an with an open ear and uh, have an opportunity to reflect themselves about the narratives that that they've heard and um, where there are opportunities to to grow in their own understanding about these things. So, thank you both for for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests Saravia and Sarah. You can learn about Sarah's work with If Not Now at ifnotnowmovement.org and Saravia's work with Hindus for Human Rights at hindusforhumanrights.org. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts Miranda Hofmeyer and Sue Katz-Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. If you're listening to the show over at TacomaRadio.org, you can also find our archive of past episodes or check us out on your podcast aggregator of choice. 
We're on social media at interfaithish, and you can keep writing us with the interfaithish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.